Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest, unflinching conversations about the issues that seem to divide us as Americans. I am Amna Nawaz, and each week we're going to feature a one-on-one interview with a special guest to learn more not only about what they believe, but why they believe what they do. So with me today, Hari Kondabolu. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. Can I run through like a very embarrassing resume real quick with you? Yes, do it. Queens raised, Brooklyn based, mm-hmm. comedian, co host mm-hmm. of multiple podcasts, including mm-hmm. Politically Reactive. Right. Uh, you have been seen on any number of late night in comedy shows uh, Letterman, Conan, Jimmy Kimmel. You've had your own special on Comedy Central. That's right. People have basically come into contact with you and your work in any number of ways. That's accurate? Yeah, yeah, no, that's not embarrassing at all. In fact, it feels really good. There you go. Yeah. You can send that to your folks. Um, so. I wanted to talk to you because a lot of your work focuses on race. Not mm-hmm. all of it, but a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And you, especially over the last year and a half, were one of the first people who really started to talk about it in a political context um, and in a way that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. So I wanted to understand more about you and yeah. where you grew up and sure. how you grew up and how that came like a thing that yeah. you wanted to talk about. So let's start with that. Tell me about Hari, where'd you grow up? Well, for, well, I think it's funny, first of all, just because I've been talking about this stuff forever, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden, it it to a lot more people, it's become relevant. But it's like I'm just I'm still doing the same stuff. Like right. it's, it's the same ideas, but now I think it's uh, there's just so much so many more ideas that people are exposed to, whether it's to the internet or or because you know if you have a president that says something that's Islamophobic or sexist, all of a sudden it's easier to give an example because the president of the United States said it. So. <laughs> Uh, it's a good, uh, it's a, a very good news peg. Um, so you want to know like how I how I, this happened? I want to know the story. Yeah, how this happened. Yeah. I want to know the story of Hari. I grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, my father is an echocardiogram technician in uh, Flushing Hospital. My mother uh, runs a cath lab at Long Island Jewish Hospital. Um, she was a doctor in India, and unfortunately, she couldn't be a doctor here, hmm. uh, you know, because she was raising two kids. Um, and they emigrated here when they were adults, right? Yes, yeah. my father first and my mother after. Um, both my brother and I, my brother Ashok, uh, who would later be the hype man in the rap group Das Racist mm-hmm. years later. Um, we grew up in uh, in Queens, first in Jackson Heights, and then in Floral Park near the border of Long Island. But we make sure it's clear. It's it's uh, there's it's a line Queens. there. There is a very clear line there. And uh, and then and then Jamaica Queens um, went to Townsend Harris High School, mm-hmm. where the high school mascot's named after me. Which I've is read that. Is that very, true? Yeah, it's very strange. It is true. Na- after you, Harry the Hawk, H A R I. Yeah, that's right. Okay. My senior year of uh, high school, a sophomore had uh, raised money to make a mascot. He could name it whatever he wanted, and he chose me because because I did comedy and I was like really active like at school, but it wasn't. Jonas Salk went to our school, so it's really like. <laughs> There are other options, clearly, <laughs> and Salk the Hawk is is closer. It's closer, depending on your yeah. Answer. Yeah, that's. But they went with Hari. Uh huh. How do you feel about that? It, it's a it's a cool legacy, but it 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 feels like I still haven't lived up to something that happened in high school. It's yeah. really weird. Like I've I've done I've had a nice career, but I still haven't 
Jonas Salk again. That's a that's a hell of a standard. Yeah, I like that. That is what's driving you. Is like is to, to make justify sure the mascot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is your career on the line right here to right. justify that. So, were you always this way? Or did you always mm. think about things the way that you think about them now as a kid too? No, I mean, I think I, I had a, a sense of justice and fairness and sensitivity, and like that was always there. And I think I get, where it is was that just from the way your folks raised you? So like, my mom, yeah. yeah my, my I think my mom and dad very are very different people, but I think. A lot of those characteristics come from my mom. Like yeah. she was always sensitive and thoughtful, and she was quick. And especially, you know, I think being, you know, she was a, she was a doctor in India in her small town in her, um, you know, in her twenties. You know, she accomplished a great deal, and then all of a sudden she lost everything, came to this country, and had to be a housewife, which was not the plan. Yeah. And I think when you deal with lots of things, with lots of loss, losing family, and you're over here, and all this stuff. You know, I think sense of humor becomes so crucial, and I saw how my mom was able often to laugh off a lot of the painful, awful things that she had to deal with. Oh, wow. And and I think that's a lot of that's a lot of us, yeah. you know. And I think seeing how my mom had to cope with um, the frustrating things in her life and how she was able to, you know, she has a very dark sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that instilled that in me and my brother, you know. And my brother and I are very close, so it's like we have this mother who kind of instilled this kind of humor and. My brother and I are discovering the world together, very close. I think you know that that obviously uh, you know leads to both of us looking for moments to make people laugh. And I think New York also. Growing up in New York, I think New Yorkers are funny. What I, do you mean by that? Because you grew up, Queens is arguably one of the most diverse places in the country. Yes, right? let alone yes. just New York. Yes, but I think New York in general. I think New York is tough. It's hard to live at Queens. You know, we had a you know a. a a fairly decent time. It wasn't like the roughest areas, but still, it was like New York is crowded. It, yeah. it, you know, our classrooms were crowded. We, it was public school education. It forces you to be a little stronger, right? Things aren't catered to you. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, as an adult, it's like subways. Like, they're the great <laughs> equalizer, regardless of your class. If you're on a subway, everyone's the same. Right. Everyone feels the same things. Everyone smells the same things. Everyone, <laughs> it's, there's some, it's You come a, into very close contact yes, with a lot of individuals. You, yeah. you are forced to confront reality. And I think, you know, as a result, you have to cope. And you cope with humor. And I I think New Yorkers have dark a dark sense of humor. I think New Yorkers were very quick. I grew up like you know snapping like back and forth, friends like insulting each other. That's normal, right? Like you know the idea. I've met people after the fact who have been like, "Why does everything have to be like a joke or something?" And I'm like, "It." That's how I communicate. That's how we all communicate. <laughs> this is a conversation. This is a conversation. Like yeah. it's not to say there isn't substance in what we're saying, but it's yeah. it's said through humor. And so, I think all of that like. You know, plus being in New York, where like it's the most famous comedy scene in the country, like I was exposed to comedy both like informally and formally my whole life. I I, I feel like asking this question is kind of living up to a stereotype, so I kind of hate to ask it, but I mm-hmm. but I will because mm-hmm. I always wonder. I'm first generation American, sure. and I always wonder how much of that is a shared experience. Yes, like, did, was there pressure? To kind of live out dreams, not for your parents, but sort of like do better, do more. My parents, I mean, certainly, but my parents were never, um, you have to do this. Yeah. Like they were always, I I thought, progressive in the sense that they worried about, you know, like us feel, they wanted us to be happy, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. happy and healthy. And of course, I mean, I don't think comedy was something they were, they thought it was a phase. 
for the longest time. Really. Yeah, I thought it was a phase. I mean, at a certain point, I'm practical enough to know <laughs> that. still be, you know? I mean, oh, God, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Much more financially lucrative and secure if this is a phase. Um, but when you told them this was the chosen path, what did they say? I mean, at that point, it was already like I had gotten a master's degree before I made this the chosen path. So you know, it's not like I jumped into it before college, right? right? You know, I was doing it in high school and college. It was a hobby I had. I uh, moved to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer. So keep that in mind. I went from wanting to be a lawyer mm-hmm. to be an immigrant rights organizer to a comedian. So I kind of very uh, – with subtlety uh, and intention lowered the bar. So by the time we got to comedian, they were already on board of this is not going to be what we want. <laughs> and just settle for something. He's doing something. Um, <laughs> but I do want to ask you about that. That obviously it had to inform the way you approach your comedy now, your experience as an immigrant rights organizer mm. on the West Coast, and also the decision to go get a master's in human rights, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm somebody who came of age uh, after 9-11. Yeah. Right. Um, I remember pre-9-11. I remember what that life was like, and I remember how things changed pretty immediately after um, so from like, you know, it happened when I was 18. So from, from my adulthood, it's post 9-11. So, uh, and I grew up in a really diverse place, right? Yeah. I grew up in a place that rest of the country apparently fears or so I've been told, right? Uh, something where like there's multiple languages and ideas and religions, like, you know, the idea of being Muslim isn't a, a, a scary foreign thing. My I had best friends who were Muslim. You know, I, I grew up near mosques. Like, you know, yeah. uh, I'm a Hindu. I also have uh, the the weird um, like thing like there's a, a, a rivalry doesn't sound like anything, but there's like, you know, the, the hatred from years past of Hindus and Muslims and other countries that, you know, get carried here that like me and my friends don't really think about but is like in the air right like the of, like generations past yeah. like legacy type stuff it's so yeah. much more complex yeah. <laughs> than what people have here you know yeah. like it, so <laughs> you know, so i i grew up with that um so it's already this complicated multi-layered thing which i certainly didn't realize until i left yeah queens i went to college in maine which was very different and uh i bet so when 911 happens i'm already being more conscious about race because were you home when that happened, or were you? I was in Maine. I was in I was at Bowdoin College, and yeah. so like you know, already it, my life was different because I'm like I was hit with oh, this is what rich means, and this is what wealthy means. Not rich, wealthy. Right. This is old money. That it isn't a coincidence that your last name is the same name of that building. <laughs> like it was, you're using summer as a verb. Like all this stuff that I, <laughs> I, I did not do. I went to public schools my whole life up to that point, and. So already the class differences is there, and then yeah. the race things, you know, of of being seen as an outsider, right? Like I went, I went to public schools, and I was a brown kid going to, uh, you know, a rich white kid school in Maine, right? Yeah. So already that was there, but then nine eleven happened, so you're getting hit with that already, and all of a sudden the whole country. The whole country you're, you're seeing a little differently. So what changed for you specifically? Like, were there instances that stick oh, with you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, reading about hate crimes around the country certainly was, you know, which is embarrassing that it, it – because it, 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 this is happening to the black community. This kind of stuff has been happening forever, mm-hmm. right? But all of a sudden, as an 18-year-old, it hits me. Like, these are happening all over the country. And then when they started happening in Queens, that's when it, it really hit – you know, it literally hit home because it felt like – 
oh, but this is other. These are other places. Right. These aren't diverse places. These are not enlightened people. And it's like, oh my god, we grew up together, and and you know, like New York, like as, as residents of Queens, we all grew up together. We know each other's kids and families and neighborhoods. Yeah. And it's happening here. Do people say things to you? In Queens? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I've, you know, before and after. You know, it's not like ignorance started post 9-11. So, um, but certainly it was elevated yeah. after that. And I worked at a, you know, the local district attorney's office in the Hate Crimes Bureau. So I saw what was happening in my bureau. Mm-hmm. I was definitely informed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, all those things really shaped the way I saw the world, you know, and it forced me to ask more questions. And you know, uh, the idea that the civil rights movement is a living thing. It's mm-hmm. not just a, a period uh, of time. It's something that we're still fighting for. We're always fighting for justice. These are things I didn't have instilled until after 9-11. Um, and up to that point, I was doing comedy, but my comedy up to that point was just trying to make people laugh by any means necessary, which meant like accents. You know, what What did I know from how South Asians were portrayed in the media? Yeah. Accents made people laugh, yeah. right? We weren't full people. We didn't need to be full people. We just had to be caricatures. I didn't know any other way to do it, right? I wasn't given that many role models. The only role model I really had uh, was, was Margaret Cho, mm-hmm. you know, and Margaret had a lot of depth. I, I was 18. I didn't have depth yet. Yeah. But I knew from definitely from watching The Simpsons, at least, that, like, if I used accents... I would make people laugh, and that's what comedy was. Do you do accents now? No. No. Now, post 9 11, everything kind of changed in yeah. that regard. I felt like having a public stage is such a privilege, even at that level, as an as a 18, 19, 20 year old with, with a college audience. Yeah. It was a privilege, and I knew that I had a voice, and people would listen to it, and there was some uh, level of influence there. So, with all that experience, and not just life experience or professional experience, yeah. the things you were seeing, you clearly had like a. Uh, a sort of moral awakening that yes. like, this is this is something that needs to be addressed, which is so, a, something a lot of people, young people, I think, are having now with the Trump election. To yes, be honest. and I see that at college campuses. I see this. This uh, people are alive in a way that I remember post nine eleven. There was a lot of us that woke up at the same time. So why comedy? Why did you decide to channel all of that there? Well, I, I mean, I like comedy. I mean, I liked comedy since I was sixteen, fifteen, sixteen years old. So it wasn't a noble thing, you know. I loved comedy, like it was. You know, why do kids start a band? Because I want to, you know, fight for freedom? No, because I like music and I play an instrument. I didn't know how to play an instrument. My poetry sucked. So, like, I did comedy. So comedy. Like, um, I loved comedy. I mean, that was, that was that. And I did comedy well before I became more aware of the bigger issues in the world. I just love the art form. Yeah. I still love the art form, in fact. And so, um, you know, as comedy is wonderful and because there's such a, there's a direct connection to what you experience, whether it's, um, the macro or the micro. Something happened today, I can talk about it immediately. Yeah. I've, I've come, I've thought about these big issues in my life, I can talk about it immediately. Yeah. There's something so direct about it. So as you evolve as a human being, there, there's, uh, there's a very, there's a very small buffer. There isn't, it isn't like I, I have to take months and years to write this novel. No, I right. go on stage and I'm figuring it out with the audience. Yeah. And, so, and you're talking about things that are happening now. You talk yeah. about political events. You talk about news. You talk about always like, have current climate. from that from that point on. Yeah. I, I I realize that like you know you can't ignore what's there. So I couldn't you, anyway. Here's my question because you you can you can do comedy as you mentioned in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. right? But you are very intentional. Yes. There's almost an activism behind it. Yes. Is that fair? It, it's um I think early on. I definitely saw the two things as the same thing. Yeah. I don't now. 
I certainly at the time, you know, was on stage saying, these are the things I need to cover that people need to know and I need to say them and figure out a way to make them funny. I didn't really find a way to make them funny, though, because I was younger. And at a certain point, you realize you do yourself a disservice, you do your audience a disservice, and you do whatever you care about a disservice if you're not focused on the task at hand. If you're trying to do something other than just making them laugh. The task at hand isn't to inform. The task at hand is to make people laugh. If you want to inform people, I know other ways to do that because I used to do that. I was an organizer, right? Um, This isn't that. This is a comedy show. You need to make people laugh. And if if you do that to the best of your ability, in in a way, that's almost as revolutionary. Like, people are actually willing to listen to you. Yeah. and, and not only that, humanize you and relate to you. And, I, you know, it, it's a work in progress, but that's so crucial. So, yeah, I would say early on I, I was up there saying the things I believe, but I honestly treated my stage as a soapbox at that point. Hmm. And it took years to try to figure out, well, all the th- – I knew how to write jokes even early on. I was good with structure, and I threw that away to talk about the things I cared about. How do I integrate the two? Yeah. How do I uh, – you know, continue being a great writer, develop as a writer while talking about things that are close to me like my heroes did. Like Pryor, Carlin, Margaret Cho, Chris Rock, Chappelle. They're, they're talking about big issues, not because they have to, but because that's in their hearts and that's in their minds. That's what they think about. So much of your work, too, focuses on your experience, on other like communities of color, too, sure. minority communities in America. Sure. And I'm I'm curious because like all comics, you probably had to travel the country to a lot of different kinds of places and communities. Does your material land differently in some audiences? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will. I will. It's funny. Like in like the, if you're in an all white room yes. in Middle America, do you yes. tell the same jokes the same way? Um. Well, no, because that's I think that's that in general. That's being a bad comedian, I think, mm. in general. Even if it's in different rooms in New York, you have to see what's happening in in the room. Yeah. You have to react to it, right? So if I say a couple of jokes and it's clear there's some discomfort, let me figure out the discomfort and address it. Let me find a way to get them on my side. And then, you know, I'm not going to change my point of view. Yeah. But I'm going to try to find a way to, so the so I do my job. I have yeah. to find a way to make it work. Like. You know, you've had teachers that stick to their lesson plan regardless of what's happening, and they don't care, and you know they don't care. And then you have the teachers that, like, are in the moment. And it's not to say that they haven't rehearsed the same funny line, like, for six periods in a row. Right. But they also know how to get it to this particular group of kids. Mm-hmm. That's what the be- Those are the best teachers. Those are the teachers I remember. Yeah. Right? The ones that found a way to reach me. And it wasn't the same thing. And they knew that every class, like every kid wasn't the same. You know, that every kid was different and every room was different. And this is right after lunch. They're going to be a little, a little tired because they just ate. This right. is the first class of the day, so they're exhausted because it's 8 in the morning. you got to change it up. you got to change it up. You have to realize what's in the room. And so that same thing is – the same thing happens when you travel the country. What just happened here? What happened in Charleston? I'm doing a gig in Charleston. What do I have to say in Charleston? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in North Carolina. The election's done. Obviously, North Carolina went red, but I'm in, uh, I'm in Chapel Hill. So what does that mean, right? right. Um, I am in Chicago. I'm talking about gun violence, but in Chicago, that means something too yeah. specific. Like, you have to realize what's there. Um, but when you talk about race so much in the way that you do, too, right. like you make fun of white people. Sure. Uh, so I, I mean, we, I, I make fun of white people in the sense of, uh, that I make fun of whiteness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like white identity. Yeah, oh, like absolutely. What it means to be white in America. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because like, well, one, I grew up where you didn't see much of that. I don't know how it is now. It's probably a little better. But like, 
you know, um, people of color were, were uh, where the jokes came from. Right. We were the props, right? <laughs> we were talked about, and we didn't get to write the scripts, and we didn't get to speak for ourselves. Yeah. So what is it like when it's the other way around? And it's very interesting when you have an audience that's uh, very mixed or mostly people of color for the white people in that audience to hear catharsis through laughter, hmm. you know, to be like, what's going on here? You know, this is interesting. Some people don't like it. Some people get very aggravated. Well, I want to ask you about this. Some people, people you, like, Have you ever had, it. like, a bad experience with someone who oh, didn't? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Like what? I mean, regularly people walk out. People heckle. Yeah. Uh, I've had people threaten me in the middle of a show. I've had people say racist things. The, the worst ones, honestly, are the ones who say racist things loud enough so I can hear it. What do you do? Well, it's, that's the thing. It's loud enough where I can hear, but not loud enough where everyone else can hear. So you have to make the call. Do I disrupt a show? Because when, when that happens, you know, you have to restate the thing so the audience knows what's happening. Otherwise, right. you're a maniac yelling at somebody, right. you know, which I've had to learn the hard way. Like, because I'm so upset, I'm reacting versus thinking about, no, it's not about them. It's about the show. Mm-hmm. This person's going after me. How do I incorporate this? Or does it distract? Because at the end of the day, you know, if if it's going to hurt the whole show, it's not about this this maniac, this this racist. You know. Yeah. Um, so you might even just ignore it. I might ignore it. Well, well, and the thing is, it's like I ignore it publicly, but I'm also eating it. Like I feel it. I'm I'm still taking it in. I yeah. still have to deal with the fact that this person decided it was okay to say this to hurt me. It wasn't to be a jerk. It wasn't to make a scene. It was to hurt me because no one else was really hearing it. It's in the. You know, it's in the row, you know, the front rows. But what is that like for you? I mean, why mm. a lot of people? And I've actually read an account. I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman. Is someone who said I I couldn't go on doing comedy anymore because the heckling was getting so bad and right. so nasty. It wasn't yeah. like, hey, you stink. It was racial stuff. It was sexist stuff. It was you know the kind of stuff that you would you kind of you'd never say to someone to right. their face. Because I know that the people I'm I'm reaching and the people who are laughing. It's more important to them and that that I'm getting more off them on the positive end than the, the negativity a few people are giving me and that their negativity in some way comes from fear. Hmm. You know, they don't understand this. They don't like this. It comes from fear. Um, Has that always been there? Has it gotten better or worse over years? I mean, it, it, in some ways it's gotten better just because, like, you know, there's more South Asians in the media. Yeah. There's more South Asians doing comedy. There's more South Asians with uh, – a broader range of characteristics being displayed. You know, we're not one dimensional. Mm. And so when I went on stage as a 22, 23 year old in New York and Seattle, um, you know, and I wasn't doing accents, people didn't know what to do with me. Right. Like, what is this? And he's not, you know, the idea of addressing the elephant in the room, like, my skin color isn't a goddamn elephant in the room. Like, the idea that I had to address that every time the way that a lot of I think a lot of women still have to do this address that the fact they're women first I mean as opposed to this is a human being with a set of experiences like um, there's a little less of that some of that also comes from success like you know it's not like some people become familiar with your work yeah no I'm not like why is this guy brown it's oh it's hurry Right. You know, it makes things a lot easier when people know what they're coming to see, obviously. You know? yeah. And it wasn't like that 10 years ago. And I think the climate has changed. Like, you know, Aziz and Mindy are groundbreaking figures just because it doesn't matter if they're saying groundbreaking things or not. They exist and they have control and a certain degree of dignity that we didn't have before. So let me so. ask you this. If you've gotten more successful. Yeah. More and more people know you. Sure. You know, do you feel any responsibility to try to 
make things better, to change. You know, you say yeah. you don't want to inform, you want to make people laugh, but now you have a microphone in a way that a lot of other people didn't before you and may not. Is there any sense of like, okay, I, I need to try to make things better of, too? Of course, but there, there's different ways to do that. I don't think stand-up is the, the right way. You know, like I mean, I think my standup proves to be effective. It's used in college and classrooms and high school classes on curriculums. Like I know that, like it is. It wasn't the intention, right? Yeah. Um, but that's you know, if I think about it that way, the, the work's not going to be as as good. You know. However, I have a podcast where I can be blunt, politically reactive. I can be blunt, and also our podcast that I do with W. Kamau Bell. Yeah. We have sections where we explain concepts to people, so we're on the same page, right? right? Um, there's there's other ways for, um, you know, for for me to get information to people and and to, uh, you know, to 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 aggressively deal with the things that are. In my heart and head, you know, and I, and I don't think stand up necessarily is important. But I, yeah, I do think I do think there is a responsibility. I mean, I'm making a film right now about Apu from The Simpsons, right? Right, and yeah. it's about representation for True TV, right? For True TV, yeah. and you know, it's, part of it is certainly there's an identity aspect to it, but part of it to me is also like when you think of 9/11 and post 9/11 backlash, you it's not just uh, as simple as people are ignorant, they see the brown people and they attack them. Mm-hmm. To get to that point, you have to not humanize that person. And you can't humanize that person because you, you haven't seen them be human. Like as as people of color, we've had to humanize white people. We've had no choice, right? Because those are our teachers and our neighbors. We see them on television, a broad range of life experiences, right? That I'm watching a movie. You know, that's not exactly my life experience, but I can understand it on a human level. Yeah. Which is, like there's something in there for me to grab on. Absolutely, too. which is why it's frustrating when you hear people say, no one's going to believe that a person of color is playing this part. No one's going to believe that this kind of, like an, an interracial marriage in this, in this movie will work. No right. one's going to believe that. They're not going to like that. To me, it's like saying, you don't think I can exist in this way. You don't humanize me the way I've been forced to humanize you, mm-hmm. right? Um, so when 9-11 happens, I'm not saying Apu and 9-11 are directly connected, but there is something to be said about you are not a full person to me. Like, I don't understand you as a full person. I don't know what a Sikh is. I don't know, uh, you know, what, what your life could be like. I can't imagine you with a family. I don't imagine any of those things. Because if the only exposure you've had to a South Asian yeah. or a Sikh or anything. Terrorist. Or uh, a terrorist in a right. movie. You're or, either yeah. a cartoon that ha- that is weak, yeah. that has no control of their lives, right? Or you're a terrorist or you're a cab driver who doesn't have a – it's nothing wrong with being a convenience store owner or a cab driver, but you, you are in the servant class. You're not someone who's actually expressing range. What is that cab driver's experience? What is that convenience store owner's experience? Who are their families? How did they end up here? That's never relevant because they're props. How did you process the, the election? Um, I mean, I think it was driven by – Oh my God! I, I, you can't say racism wasn't a part of it. Mm-hmm. You can't because I, you know, and I'm not saying that half the country's racist, but there are certainly people who justified racist things that were being said and looked past it because they wanted something else or dismissed it. Dismiss either right. dismissed it or didn't like it, but they couldn't vote for Hillary or couldn't vote for anybody other than a Republican and still saw. Like you make a compromise, right? This person's racist and saying racist things, and I don't like hearing this, but jobs, the possibility of jobs. Or you don't know how economics work, really. So 
this man's a business person, though. Like being a business person and successful doesn't mean you know how to run a country. But this goes back to the earlier point you were making. If people, if a, if a large section of the country has only ever known people mm-hmm. of color in a certain context, right. if you don't live in the environment where you're regularly bumping up against those other experiences and having right. them humanized and being able to see them as full people, this dude works then, in the kitchen and that's a job I could have had. This person does construction. That's you're a job a lot I could of ways have had. They could have. They could have humanized. Sure. There's no, I mean, you you have to not see the person as competition. You have to see the person as part of the community. And language is sometimes an issue. But then what you do is you try to learn each other's language and you try to find a way to connect. That's what communities do. My question is when we talk about racism in the election, Mm. a lot of times I think people think we're ascribing that to the people who supported. Mr. Trump, to say that there was a there was an element of race undeniably, but that they sort of dismissed it or a small segment maybe even participated or uh-huh. perpetuated, whatever. What if it just wasn't even a factor? Because th- it doesn't matter in their communities. They don't have people of color. They're not, well, they're not used to that engagement. What you ignore also says something. Yeah. You know, if you if you don't, if you it's race, it, it's. It's not like it doesn't exist. There is something to be said about like ignoring something allows something to happen. You're aiding and abetting in racism even if you are not actively taking part in it. But if you're not you and, and I and you haven't experienced it. Yes. I guess can we can you blame people for dismissing it? If they've never experienced it, if it's never been a part of their if they've always been on the side of the equation where it didn't really affect them. I'm not if this was the 1920s, I might agree with you. But media has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, you, they're going to hear about racism. They're going to hear people's stories, and they might react by saying, you know, again with the race card, playing it again. They're still having to hear the story and decide whether they want to believe it or not. So, yeah, at a certain point, if you're given information time and time again, because people are, mm-hmm. and they choose to ignore it, they refuse to humanize other people, that's racism. That's racism. You can't say, well, they've never had experience with it. I didn't have uh, experience with like white people from the Midwest, but I still see them as human beings because I've seen their stories over and over and over again. Right. You know, I, to the point where I can watch Field of Dreams and I'm not going to be like, man, people in the Midwest are nuts. They just destroy their fields for. For, for baseball fields and they believe in ghosts? No, that'd be an absurd thing to say because I've seen more than one white story about the Midwest. It's a good you know? movie, by the way. It's a great movie. It's like top three sports movies. And, also, and it's, a, it's a baseball movie, which is great, which is also something I can always connect with people on. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Did you play baseball? Miserably, but yeah. Okay. But um, <laughs> Little League, short Little League career. But like... <laughs> But, yeah, I, you know, you can't – I mean, I, I refuse to believe that people aren't exposed to race in some form at this point. Yeah. We had a black president. You're telling me people are really colorblind, that nobody noticed it, and if they didn't notice it, they didn't hear about it in some press or some relative or no – it was just business as usual? No. Like, people aren't completely in their bubbles. Things reach them. They have to make choices. And if they're unable to humanize other people and understand their stories, at a certain point, it's on them. This isn't 50, 60 years ago. It's now. Things are very different. You have access to stories and ideas. It's your choice how you So you here's the last them. question I'll follow up on this about. And sure. that is the, so the people who felt like 
this last presidency did not speak to them. Their sure. lives, their wages went down, right? Okay. There's a segment of the population, non-college educated, that did see their wages decline sure. over the last decade. If you felt like the system isn't working for me, this president didn't work for me, throw it all out the window. This guy could be my one shot. You have to be willing to understand that the president uh, definitely has impact, but some of this stuff is systemic. It doesn't come down to a magical person who takes over and fixes everything. Yeah. What we've like clearly discovered is the person in charge can easily destroy everything or make decisions that put the country at risk. But if you want to, uh, but but it's harder to do the other side of it. It's harder to uh, to rebuild things. It's harder to create jobs. It's harder to um, allocate funds elsewhere. It's harder to um, deal with a Congress that you know Obama had a Congress that was. Um, was blue when he started, right? But, but at the same, that doesn't mean that everyone's on the same page, right? These are not. You have to understand how those things work, because if you think that, like, well, Obama was in office and we didn't get these things, and so it's his fault, that's not how this works. Plus the fact that, like, you know, uh, people didn't know the difference between Obamacare and the American Affordable uh, Care, Care Act. Affordable Care Act. Yeah. So, uh, what is that? Like, if 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 you don't understand that stuff. You're not making an informed decision. You're making it based on on hearsay and uh, false news and what your uncle said and a, a, a chain email. And I mean, what is that? You know, and if you're not exposed to black people and you're just exposed to a few images and the president, well, he's only doing things for other black people. That's all he cares about. It's all about race with him. It's like. That'll happen if you really don't have a broad range of experiences. How do you how do you be funny now under oh. this presidency? I mean, there's a lot of material there I there's guess to work with, but there's a lot of heavy stuff too. I mean, there's stuff that's going to have very real, serious impacts on people's lives. Yeah, but it already has. This isn't, you know, in some ways, this isn't new. It's just more exposed now. Some of it's new because it's like, geez, like I've never seen in such a short period of time, like. Like you see the bones of the administration. It's like they're not hiding very much. Fumbling, like bitterness, a president that's tweeting from his personal account, you know, had to delete tweets about the Oscars because somebody's like, you can't tweet about how you're upset about the Oscars. Like that's new. But he, but the rest of it, like, you know, the racial anxiety, you know, he doesn't dog whistle, he screams. Like, this is not new. Mm-hmm. This isn't new. And so... So what does that mean for your work? That means that, like, the stuff I was talking about before, I don't need to convince people the first step because I just have to say what he said. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, this... For it's easier me, to establish the premise. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Just sh- the I can Twitter cut account. to the chase. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that's the unfortunate thing is that, like, the stuff I talk about is fairly evergreen. Racism, unfortunately, is evergreen, as is sexism and homophobia. There's been change in progress and mutation, so it looks different, but... These are evergreen things. I can I can talk about them because they're happening and they've happened. Mm-hmm. So for me, it doesn't change all that much. It just uh, it forces me to kind of just I have to address what's happening on top more than I normally do because normally I don't like talking about politics. Hmm. That's just, it's sports to me. So if you're into sports, great. And if you're not, it's it, it separates you. But. Now I think more people are into sports. You know what I mean? Like it's hard when it's so accessible now because he says things that are so blatant. They're blunt, you know. Yeah. Um, to the um, point where you can give a speech, like his uh, his recent uh, joint session. Yeah. 
And the spe- he can stumble and fumble, but it's seen as a good speech because the bar has been so different. You know, it's been so low. Yeah. And, and to the point where he can... St- I don't know. I mean, in the joint session, he didn't really stumble and fumble, did he? he yeah, he, he did. He read off prompter the whole time. Yeah, he, he stuck still to, prom- fu- he stuck no, no, to no, script. No, he still stumbled and fumbled and made up a few words. I think people mm-hmm. go through that the thing again. Go through it again? Yeah, I think we're so used to him, like, really... The bar is so low, you're saying, yeah, for I, I public mean, he, speaking? There were words he made up. There were, th- there were things that pe- I, I got so used to, mm-hmm. too, that I'm like, okay. And I'm like, no, that's not a word. <laughs> And uh, he he definitely there's a few moments as a performer I'm like okay he definitely improvised a few words because he yes. must, might have lost his place on the prompter and he's trying to fill in space there were moments where I'm like okay this dude's also know just he's, doing. he's proven himself prone to want to sort of you know provide embellishment here and there yeah, go off script it was, it's and that's not it's that's part not of the good. delivery yeah and he threw in the catchphrase he makes money every time the hat sold like. That's not normal. And also, like, people seem to be ignoring. They said, well, it was good that he addressed the hate crime stuff, and it's good he said that. Yeah, right off the top, right? Yeah, yeah. And he also, in the middle, he slipped in the voice business, right? He slipped in, like. The Homeland Security Office, where he wants people to report crimes committed against them by immigrants, right? That's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. Yeah, and somehow, like, a secret police force, yeah, that he slipped that in the middle. So let's focus on the actions. Like yeah. words are words. That doesn't mean anything. Like what are the actions? And so, no, I think we were we're the bar is so low that he can give us lip service about like hate crimes are bad, and we're like, yeah, wow, yeah, they are bad. What's wrong with you? Of course they're bad. And then he basically, you know, tacitly is saying that violence against immigrants is good because we have a government agency that says when immigrants are hurting you specifically, that's its own brand of violence and you should report it. When you're tacitly, you know, when you are pointing out a specific group and saying this specific group is trouble, you're tacitly giving permission to people to react to it. Just like with the war on terrorism during the Bush era, if, you know, if since he, he wasn't steadfast enough I think especially early with talking about how we're all Americans, Muslims are Americans, you saw a lot of hate crimes early on. Yeah. When you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, like, what did he say, like getting people out of their caves, when you dehumanize Muslims off the bat, it's hard to to get that back in the box once yeah. you take it out. And so it's well, the, the same thing with Trump. Well, the voice office, too, it gives outsized importance to something that's not really a problem, right? Like the actual no. crimes committed by undocumented crime immigrants are statistically crime. non-existent. Um, so uh, your albums. 2014 was your debut comedy album, right? Yeah, Waiting 24. for 2042, yeah. which sounds very threatening to some people, <laughs> I think. That's the year that the white majority is supposed to become the technical minority. Which it's right? funny because the, the album is about the fact that like that's not important. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I can't, it can't be like Waiting for 2042, but it's really not important. It doesn't really make a good it's not good. title. Not good for the uh, I didn't want hashtag. a Fiona Applet on the first record. You know, <laughs> I wanted to get it right to the point. So. Mainstream American Comic mm-hmm. is your latest album. Though. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about the cover photo. Yeah. It's a a thing of beauty. It's provocative. Oh, is Um, that intentional? uh, You want to know the truth? Yes. (laughs) Well, I've I've never shared this, but the photo is actually... So I got asked to be in a sexy Asian men calendar. Cool. So uh, me, my friend Katie, we took a bunch of pictures for this calendar, and I needed a cover for this album, (laughs) and this was one of the outtakes. And so, but it works so for the album, right? So, anyone who hasn't seen it, can you do your best to describe it, please? I want to hear you describe sure. it in your own words. It's me in a USA flag jacket, mm-hmm. uh, no undershirt, provocatively unzipped, like chest hair all up in your face, 
um, in in my South Asian man goodness. Mm-hmm. Like it's the, the you know it's the. Uh, I'm very proud of that picture. Are you? I want to ask how you feel about it when you look at it. I'm handsome and I look handsome. I'm not going to argue with that. And the funny thing about it is there's some people who like it because they think it's funny, just funny. There's some people who like it because it's like, oh, my God, that's like confident. And also some people who are just like, oh, that's a really hot picture. Um, I love the fact all three of those things exist. Yeah. And I, I've gotten to do all those things. And it was unintentional. I mean, the name of the album was going to be Mainstream American Comic. I decided that. But. That picture's perfect. And it looks like an American apparel ad. It does. I mean that and that's intentional. So <laughs> um but yeah, no, it's it's both albums really, you know, they're they're similar in that they talk about um play, like what is the place of a person of color in society. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I talk about identity a lot. I talk about racism and violence and class and gender and sexuality and the idea of, of marginalization and the fact that like um uh, being a marginalized identity, like being a minority group, still makes you mainstream. You know, because the the story of the oppressed is the story of America, and so I don't say it that way because it's not funny. But like that's basically the theme. You see that throughout both records and and the last one. You know, it's called Mainstream American Comic. Also, because I talk about uh, you know politics really for the first time. I don't really talk about. Uh, Republicans and Democrats all that much, and yeah. I did for this one. Um, so that was an, an attempt also to reach like, yeah, hey, I can do this thing too, which I don't really love doing. So you don't love doing it. I feel and like we're gonna you're gonna be doing more of it. Now. I have to now, but like, yeah, it's it, to me. I mean, historically, it's kind of like I don't. I'd rather talk about Obama and the drones as opposed to getting legislation through. I'd like. I'd rather talk about how the legislation is being described and what people know versus mm-hmm. like. You know, the Republicans are being obstructionist. They are being obstructionist. But to me, that's there's less meat there. You know, there's more meat when it's stuff people can relate to in their day to day lives. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Hari Kondabolo. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations. And we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>